Good morning and welcome to Laurel Heights. I think the summer is almost over and our kids are back in school or will be soon. Folks have returned from vacation trips and we now await the arrival of our winter members here in just a couple of months and we pray for their safe return to us. In our audience today, a very good friend of mine and his wife, brother and sister Ken Welliver from the Dallas area. Ken has been preaching the gospel for many, many years. And I know that you expect me to say this, and so I'll go ahead and accommodate your expectation. I've always looked up to Ken. We are pleased that they are with us. While you're turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I have a question for you to consider that will lead us into our study. How do you feel about a good debate, an exchange of differing ideas with supporting evidence, responses to arguments and the pressing of points? How do you feel about a good debate? Or you may prefer the word conversation or exchange of ideas. Well, one of your first thoughts might be contained in my question. How do you feel about a good debate? And your answer might be, Brother Berkeley, not every debate is a good debate. And I will not debate you on that point. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 has something to say for Christians to pay attention to. Verses 1 through 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ... I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. The Apostle Paul was ready to debate. Consider the language of the passage. Look at the phrases and what they convey. We destroy arguments. Waging war, but not with weapons of the flesh. Responding to every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Paul was ready to debate. But not just any subject. His interest in good debating had to do with his interest in truth from God he was charged to communicate. His interest in debate had to do with the conflict between right and wrong and the solution of that conflict in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may remember two weeks ago in pursuit of our theme this year, Who Will Follow Jesus?, I made reference to this passage and others, and I said to us that Jesus calls us to battle. 
Now the context of this engagement is spiritual and persuasive, not carnal and violent, but Jesus calls us to battle, to wear the whole armor of God, to stand against the wiles of the devil, to use the sword of the Spirit, to fight the good fight of faith. Christians stand for something, and we are not just spectators, we are soldiers in the Lord's army. We are ready to contend earnestly for the faith. And often in evangelism, when we're talking to people about the truth of the gospel, we find ourselves in debate mode because they've heard something and maybe they've been committed to something that's not the truth of the gospel. And we want to comport ourselves in such a way that we are ready to give an answer that conveys to the lost the reason for our hope. Now, having said all of that, I want to refer back to 2 Corinthians 10 <clears throat> to point out something to be carefully considered here. Paul said, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. I want you to think of that. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. What does that mean? It means we don't fight like the world fights. <clears throat> we fight as the Lord has directed that His people be engaged. There are all kinds of methods and weapons and characteristics of the world that we don't latch on to. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. In much of the debate that goes on in our political world and through social media, there are methods and attitudes we must reject. Even if we agree with the principle being argued, there are methods and attitudes of this world as Christians we cannot adopt. I want to give you three examples this morning. And I'm going to frame this in a negative way, hoping to have a positive impact in our minds and in the way that we communicate with people. I'm going to call this three ways to kill a debate. Three ways to kill a debate or end a good conversation. Number one, don't listen. Just talk. When engaged in controversy, arguing your point, do all the talking. Don't give the other person time to speak. Shut them down. So when the other person speaks, don't pay any attention. Do all the talking. If you are right and they are wrong, why let them talk? That's a common approach in conversation and debate, but it's a killer. Three reasons why. Number one, you can't respond to an argument you haven't heard. Number two, when you listen, it shows that you care. <clears throat> and number three, there may be learning and revising what they believe that the person you're talking to is engaged in, and you need to hear that. 
so that your responses can be adjusted to their learning. In James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, one of the hard commandments for many of us, James expresses this with such clarity, you just can't miss it unless you aim to. It says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So, when there is disagreement and conflict and controversy, if we are not well disciplined, we just become unraveled. And your tongue just goes on and on in non-stop mode, or you pound the letters off of your keyboard. You don't stop to listen. Not pausing long enough to hear any response, much of the debate that goes on in social media platforms has this very tone to it. Everybody wants to talk, nobody wants to listen. One of the reasons Jesus was so effective, He listened to people. He listened to people. He listened to Nicodemus and therefore was able to craft his response according to what Nicodemus was saying. He listened to the woman at the well. He listened to his disciples. Now, he maintained his authority. He never compromised. He was the master teacher, but embedded in Jesus' method was good listening. I don't want to be like the fool in Proverbs 18.2, who takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Good outcome from conversation and study and debate is enhanced by good listening. How do you kill a debate? How do you end a conversation? How do you get nothing out of a Bible study with someone? Demand that others listen to you, but you don't listen to them. Three ways to kill a debate. Number two, <clears throat> argue from a position of pride. In circumstances where there is conflict and disagreement and tension, the devil can lead us from good discussion into the dumpster of personal pride. Let's admit that debates are often competitive and conversations about religious differences can be competitive. And we can start thinking in terms of winning or losing. And we don't want to be losing. And if you're not focused on attitude and good discipline and what your purpose is, Pride can take over and nobody wins and truth is buried underneath the rhetoric of rage and vainglory. I think we all know how this works. You get into this argument with someone and you state your case <clears throat> and they have some responses and their responses are pretty good. So you begin to think, I'm going to have to crank it up here. 
I'm going to have to get tougher. I'm going to lose this. And so you crank up the dynamics and you pump up the adjectives. And this is usually where sweat immerses you. And if you don't bring yourself under better control and turn the emotion down, you can almost forget what the argument is about. And it becomes nothing but a contest that you are determined to win. We kill opportunities when we argue from a position of pride. And is this why Paul wrote some of the things that he wrote <coughs> in Galatians 5 <coughs> and verse 15? If you bite <coughs> and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Later in the same context, Galatians 5.26, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And have you ever noticed in the same context the works of the flesh? And have you noted and counted that eight of the fifteen have to do with attitude out of control? Technically and scripturally, you may be right about the issue at hand. You may be on the good side of the proposition. But when it becomes about you winning, <clears throat> or me winning, defeating somebody, hanging up your trophy or plaque, truth can be lost and glory never given to God for His Word. When we talk to people about the gospel, the aim is never for us to come across looking brilliant or superior or the holiest in the room. No. The aim is for truth to be taught from Scripture without any ugly distraction of our pride. You know why? The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. So what could be a good debate, a good Bible study, a good teaching moment, good conversation can be killed by not listening or it can be killed by arguing from a position of pride. Number three, malice is a killer. Pride can take you right on into malice pretty quick. Right down that road, I've heard preachers and writers describe malice. Bob Owen said, the green-eyed monster. The lexicographer Trench said, viciousness of mind from which all the individual vices spring. Bill Mosley said, an ugly internal image set on harming others. Folks, if we argue the case for New Testament Christianity with malice, what kind of method is that? What is your comportment saying about that religious system that you're promoting and that you say you've embraced? If you're arguing the case for the New Testament with malice, what kind of method is that? Remember where we started? The weapons of our warfare 
are not carnal. Discipline is what a lot of this is about. The summer before I started college, I worked in a factory on an assembly line, Whirlpool. And there were various high-pressure lines in the plant, and they were set with very specific strategic thermostats. So that if the pressure came to a certain level because something was wrong somewhere, there would be a release, a pop valve. Those little gadgets were safety features so that tanks and lines <clears throat> wouldn't explode if the pressure went up. We all know people who need a pop valve. For the Christian, we ought to have such discipline of mind, the pressure never triggers the pop valve. The seething, boiling inferno, the green-eyed monster not only disables us, it can just turn people away from what we're trying to say. People may exasperate you. And they might even wrong you. We may be exasperated and offended, but if we embrace an attitude of malice toward them, the devastation comes immediately on us. And the Bible speaks to this in so many places. The discretion of a man defers anger. Proverbs 19.11 Or Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Or Ephesians 4.31, Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and brawling and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Malice can kill a debate. It can ruin a relationship. It can end a Bible study and cause people to walk away and never, ever come back. Well, I think you're probably ready for me to take this in a more positive direction. Have you ever heard of the royal law? I want you to be opening to the book of James and find one verse there in James 2. James chapter 2, I'll give you the verse in a moment. The royal law. Uncivil debate has an obnoxious presence in our society. In politics, in religion, through social media, impulsive insults and cyberbullies and verbal vomit and malice and pride, shouting without listening. I want you to look at James 2 and verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. You want to do well? There it is. Why is this called the royal law? <clears throat> when you think of royalty, you think of someone who reigns supreme. All right, 
Love, as defined by God and exhibited by Christ and enjoined by the Holy Spirit in the epistles, must reign in the hearts of Christians. In debates are not in debates. In conversations are not in conversations. In good conversations, in conversations that are heated, the royal law must reign. And to that, I want to add this final point. Love doesn't make the truth truer, but it removes one of the biggest obstacles to good dialogue. Hate. May I repeat, love doesn't make the truth truer, but it removes one of the biggest obstacles to good dialogue. Hate. All right. Back to 2 Corinthians 10, where we started. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, <clears throat> but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Like Paul, God's people today must be ready to stand up for the truth, prepared to cast down the arguments of men against God and fight the good fight of faith, but not with the carnal weapons of men. As we march into battle, we must never leave behind the royal law. Should you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we afford you this opportunity as we stand now to sing together. Why do you wait to 